Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And in this one, we talk about the hottest team in the NBA. And that team resides in Houston, Texas, believe it or not. We'll look at the first Texans home regular season shutout in team history. And did Lance Berkman's Hall of Fame case just get way, way better? Plenty to discuss in this one. Joining me is my co-host and regular sidekick and fellow H-Town sports junkie and veteran journalist, Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, the Rockets have won six in a row. It's the longest winning streak in the NBA right now. What? Hottest team in the NBA, the Rockets? Are you sure? What What year is this? 1994, 1995? <laughs> oh, it's great, Robert. Boy, we, we could use some good news. They, they obviously haven't been watching Texans games. I can tell you that right now. Um uh, just so many different reasons that this team has, for whatever reason, pushed a button and gone into overdrive. I, I mean, I know we'll get to them, but, you know, better shot selection, playing better defense. It's just amazing to watch what this team has done in the last six games and without Jalen Green and KPJ. That, that's what the biggest thing is for me, Robert. Yeah, KPJ kind of in and out, you know, they've had Christian yeah. Wood issues where he's went down with the ankle, but been able to stick it out the last couple of games. Jalen Green for all of them, though, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Jalen Green, except for the first quarter of that first win. And they brought in shooters. We talked about it last week. Garrison Matthews, that's got to be a huge part of this discussion because you were still learning how, what was his first name was. <laughs> I think I called him Garrett. Yeah, by accident. It is Garrison. You were right. Yeah, so Garrison Matthews has just been unbelievable, not just shooting threes, but shooting threes in the clutch. He's been fantastic in the fourth quarter. My only complaint is figure out a way to get him the ball more in the fourth quarter, run some screens for him, run some action for him, get him open, get him the ball. He's a clutch shooter. He's one of those guys like a Ray Allen or something where he just needs a little bit of space. And boom, he's got it. And he's just been money in the fourth quarter. Just absolute money. And, and money also, Armani Brooks, uh, not incredible, you know, as far as his shooting goes, but just really good, more the shooting that we expected from him in year two. And then you've got Eric Gordon, the veteran, that just keeps up in his trade value. If you're a, a trade fan of Eric Gordon, you can't be unhappy with what he's doing. You don't want to see him showcasing himself as a point guard because he's been terrible a couple times uh, recently, late in games in the last couple of wins. He's turning the ball over. Um, but at the same time, when he's not turning the ball over, he's making big shots. So th those guys, those guys that can make shots are a huge help. And then, you know, like I said, and we said it last week, Christian Wood continues to have turned a corner and is starting to play like the Christian Wood all-star level player that we saw before the injury last year. And when he's, gotten the minutes and he's gotten the time to, you know, to, to just kind of open the floor up a little bit for him where he can take those three point shots. And the, you don't have the uh, guys like Tice and other guys where they, they got to fear him a little bit on the drive. You know, he's making the three point shot. So just a lot of it's, it's not one or two things. There's a, a bunch of stuff that that's helping out the Rockets. not to mention the fact, Steven, and let's be honest, they played an Oklahoma city team that, then went on to lose by a record 70 zillion the night after they faced the Rockets the <laughs> second time. They played the Pelicans. They played the, the Orlando Magic. So these are some of the worst teams in the NBA, but 
That's what we thought the Rockets were before this all started. Well, yeah, and Robert, you've got to start somewhere. I, I mean, I, I don't think the Rockets are going to be mistaken for the Phoenix Suns and Golden State Warriors anytime soon, regardless of what they're doing now. But obviously, you, you've got to start with confidence from somewhere. And, you know, going back to Garrison Matthews, yeah, I, I agree in the fourth quarter, especially because this is when the Rockets tend to kind of stumble a little bit when the game is, you know, they've got a good lead. It happened against the Pelicans and it kind of happened against the Magic where they kind of stumble. You know, they go through those few minute stretches where they're not making shots. I would like to see more uh, the ball in Garrison's hands more in the fourth quarter. So it but it's those little things, Robert, that it's it's been a full team effort. It hasn't been just one guy that has just stepped up and carried the team on its back. And honestly, I think, you know, if you're looking at the long haul, the big picture, that's what you want. You want different guys that can step up because if one guy goes cold, somebody else is going to pick up the slack. And that's kind of been what it's been with the Rockets. And and the other big thing too, Robert, is the turnovers have been less. You know, obviously, I mean, it's you know, I'm, I'm stating the obvious here, but when the Rockets were losing, they were just turning the ball over an incredible amount. But Lately, in this six-game winning streak, the turnovers have been much less. And when they let the other teams back in the game, like they did against the Magic and, and almost did against the Pelicans, you know that's when the turnovers start coming back. So that that's another aspect of the Rockets game that has really stepped up in these last six. Part of the turnovers is Kevin Porter Jr. when he has played is not turning the ball over as much. You don't have in this win streak the backcourt of a 19 and a 20, 21-year-old you know, just young guys that don't know what they're doing with the basketball as much. But also a big part of it is Daniel Tice being out there. You've got two bigs and it's tough when you have two bigs to figure out what to do with the ball and, and, and more bigs on the court. There's more chance that, you know, one of those guys, you know, they're, they're not considered ball handlers either. You know, Christian Wood and, and Daniel Tice for sure are, are not ball handlers. But let me just mention Garrison Matthews one more time, because there's something that the Rockets have to think about, and Rafael Stone's got to think about. A couple of years ago, I remember Daniel House, everybody was so like, you got to sign this guy to a big extension. Look what he's doing. You finally got somebody that can shoot the three, that can play a little bit of defense on the perimeter on multiple positions. I mean, that's what we were just begging the Rockets to do with Daniel House, and the Rockets got burned on that. But, Stephen, this one to me is even a more no-brainer because – now you don't have these huge contracts where you're trying to nickel and dime the smaller contracts because you had, you know, James Harden and Chris Paul or James Harden and Russell Westbrook or whatever. So with Garrison Matthews, you got to sign this guy to a, you know, one of these four-year contracts and get him while he's cheap. Don't wait and wait and wait because with every game, he's looking more and more indispensable, looking more and more like a guy you want in the starting lineup, whether it's a, like a four-year, $20 million deal, something like that. He's worth it. I mean, look what they're paying Duncan Robinson with the Miami Heat. You don't want to be paying that much for Garrison Matthew, but the longer you wait, the more potential that is. And I think he's for real. It's not just that he's hitting big threes. It's not just that he's a good three-point shooter. It's the fact that he does a lot of smart things on the basketball court. He takes charges. He's where he should be on defense. He gets tips. He gets rebounds occasionally. He's doing other things. He's not just a one-dimensional guy. And 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 the Rockets have him on a two-way contract right now. 
And when you're the Rockets and you're desperate for, okay, who are our rotation guys going to be on a team that looks like a playoff team? Garrison Matthews looks like that kind of guy. Yeah, from a contract standpoint, that's true. You certainly would get him more on the cheap. And, of course, with Daniel House, you waited because there was such a big conflict that he felt that he needed that bigger contract. And it took a while for that deal to get done. I, I just... I don't know. I mean, I mean, as much as I love what Garrison Matthews is doing, I, I need to see a little more of a sample size before I'm going to say, oh, let's commit to this guy for four years. But you are right in, in the way the contract is set up or could be set up. But I, I want to see a little more of a sample size of what he can do. Well, look, look at the sample size, though, of Garrison Matthews compared to Daniel House. Remember Daniel House basically never played in the NBA when the Rockets were playing a minutes a couple of years ago. Garrison Matthews has played some NBA minutes in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think he's his third year, right? Yeah, yeah. And his three-point shot is for real because he was shooting upper 30s before he came to the Rockets. It's not like this is an unusual thing for him to start start hitting three-point shots. And so it, it's not as though you, you're looking at a guy that, like, we, we don't know what he can do. And, and the difference between him and House, to me, is just he's a smart player. And we're seeing it more and more with Daniel House. It's so frustrating to watch him play with the negative things that Daniel House does. The turnovers, he makes some weird decisions, bad decisions. And also Daniel House, one thing that drives me crazy is the guy thinks that he's James Harden. He thinks, oh, I can make the step back threes all the time or I can take the 18-foot jumper, um, which is not a good shot in today's NBA. And, and also Daniel House is terrible, god-awful at finishing around the basket. I don't know how many dunks he misses and layups and, and different things like that. So, you know, there's just a lot of stuff that I like about Garrison Matthews as, as a smarter ball player, as a guy that makes better decisions out there on the floor. And, and I, I don't know him personally, but you just get the impression from all the stories that I read about Garrison Matthews and what he did at Lipscomb and kind of fighting his way, you know, as somebody that wasn't even, you know, he was not somebody that everybody was trying to get in college. They they right. were not trying right. to recruit this kid. And he gets it to Lipscomb, basically the only team that was willing to give him anything as far as an offer goes and fights his way. And, and he was a great player for Lipscomb. He was their best player. I mean, not, you know, not a guy that you go, okay, this is a future superstar in the NBA, but for a college player, he was the best player on, a, on the Lipscomb team. And, you know, being the best player on a team means a little bit more responsibility. And he's had more responsibility than I think Daniel House had in his, you know, whatever college career he had or G League or whatever. So that's why I like Garrison Matthews a little bit more. And I trust him more to, to give him the money over Daniel House. Well, I will say, I think the Rockets are in a position right now where they probably need to commit to somebody like a Garrison Matthews in a shorter amount of time. I mean, when they were committing to Daniel House, they were still a winner. You know, they're in a rebuilding mode and they need guys who are intense and, and at least to this point have been consistent. And Garrison Matthews has been that guy. I, I certainly, as I said, I love what he's doing, you know, maybe a little hesitant, but the Rockets are probably in a position right now where they need to do it sooner rather than later, or at least get guys in there like him who can do what they've been doing. And he's obviously a big reason they've won six games in a row. And Robert, let's not forget Jay Sean Tate. You know, you could ask, what has this guy been doing? But the better question is, what's this guy not been doing? He's scoring. He's blocking shots. He's dishing out assists. And we already know. I mean, we've talked about his hustle and intensity you know, dozens of times on this podcast over the last couple of years. Jay Sean Tate's another reason that the Rockets have been winning like they have. 
Yeah, that game the other night. I mean, uh, granted, it's against Ugh. Oklahoma City, and you kind of have to say granted with everything involving Oklahoma City, but 32 points, 10 rebounds, 7 assists, 5 blocks. I mean, the numbers that he put up that night, when you look at overall in all the categories, it was Akeem Olajuwon stuff. I mean, it's Akeem Olajuwon stuff. That's all I got to yeah. say. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't care who it comes against. I mean, the fact that Jay Sean Tate got you 32 points I mean, that that really shocked me. And I, uh, I I only caught a little part of that game. Now, I caught the second half of the Orlando game, and he looked real good. Uh, watched the New Orleans game. He looked pretty good there. But, yeah, he's another reason that the Rockets are where they are right now. All right. Now, here's something that I, I'm going to say seriously, Stephen, and you're going to think I'm flat-out nuts. But, look, the Rockets have won six in a row. And I, I know it's against not good teams, but they're just playing a different brand of basketball. Now, when I say this, let me just point out, they need Jalen Green back healthy. They need Kevin Porter Jr. back healthy. Those guys have got to get consistently healthy when I say this. But the Rockets, playoffs, I'm going to say that, playoffs are a possibility. They're three and a half games out of the 10th spot, the play-in game, four games out of the ninth spot. Now, I consider the play-in game a playoff, basically. I mean, that's, uh, to me, what the playoffs are. You know, if you get a nine or 10, you got a shot, which puts you there. Now, look at the guys that are ahead of the Rockets right now. They have moved ahead of the Oklahoma City Thunder that are in full tank mode. The Pelicans, they're not getting Zion back anytime soon. So I I think they can be better than the Pelicans from here on out. The Spurs are nothing special, and they're just a couple games behind the Spurs, one game in the win column behind the San Antonio Spurs. And then... There's the Sacramento Kings. That's a team that you could potentially jump. They have a new coach. You just don't know what's going to happen with the Kings, whether they fall apart or not. It's a good team, maybe better than the Rockets, but I don't know. The Portland Trailblazers. Damian Lillard's got groin issues. This could be something that lasts the remainder of the season. That is not something easy to come back from. He's looked terrible. He's looked terrible going back to the Olympic experience. So I don't know what's going to happen with the Portland Trailblazers. That's a team that could go in in the tank. You have the Timberwolves. They're an iffy team in the ninth spot, although they're playing a lot better. I'll grant that. And I think they're going to be a playing uh, team, but also the Denver Nuggets. And you're going to think I'm crazy, but the Denver Nuggets, no Jamal Murray. They've lost Michael Porter Jr. for the season. If anything happens to Jokic, it's a one-man team there. I mean, it's an MVP caliber guy, but... You know, that's a team that could let go of the rope after all the success they've had over the last few years. Steven, it's really hard to get up when you've been, you know, you've thought of yourself as a championship contender, definitely a conference championship contender. And now you're like, well, what are we fighting for? Because we don't have a chance to really make a run, not not, not without Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. You don't happen to have that uh, sound clip queued up. Playoffs? Because <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. great. You know, but but I mean, think about it. What are the Rockets? Seven and sixteen right now. So that, that's what twenty-three games. You've got fifty-eight left, and the way that the West is shaping up, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that, Robert, because that that thought actually crossed my mind the other day. I'm thinking, I mean, I, I'm not ready to say this team's a playoff team, but my goodness, they've won six in a row, and the way the West is going, you know, if the Rockets build up some kind of momentum, I mean, it's not that far fetched. Now they do have a pretty brutal schedule these next three weeks. You know, they've They've been making some hay with this easy schedule, but trust me, it's going to get a lot tougher. So it's going to get a lot tougher to do what you're suggesting. But my gosh, stranger things have happened, haven't they? 
Not only that, we also have to keep in mind that John Wall might be coming back really soon. One thing that baffles me about this two-week ramp-up that the Rockets claim John Wall needs before he can step on the court, for Rockets management, why would he not be ready? If you have him on the permanent trading block, why don't you have John Wall ready to play? I don't understand the two-week ramp-up. Would you want your biggest or your big trading asset, and I don't know if it's your biggest because you know nobody wants that contract, <laughs> but he's your big yeah. trading asset ready for any team willing to deal him. I don't understand why it's going to take this long. The next game is Wednesday against the Nets. You're not even going to be close against the Nets without maybe a John Wall in there. And not to say that John Wall was playing great last year and there were some things that I didn't particularly like about John Wall, but he's got a much better team of talent around him than he did last year. And I think that that's a big part of it. And that few minutes that you put him out on the floor instead of say Eric Gordon late in games, dribbling, you know, sometimes off of his foot or giving up easy turnovers, which we've seen him do. They just don't look like they have any plan in the last few minutes of the game. And luckily they've had a big lead the last couple of games to save them. But without Kevin Porter Jr., and I can't believe I'm saying this, without Kevin Porter Jr., they even have they look like they even have less of a plan late in games. And the team just doesn't look like they know how to get the ball up quickly, how to set up, what play they're supposed to get into, what play they're going to run. And at some point, you're not going to be beating these crummy teams. You're going to be playing against some good teams that know what they're doing where John Wall's going to help you. And John Wall, he's got to come in there with this attitude of, hey, if I get 15 minutes one night because Porter Jr.'s back playing, then i got to be okay with that. Or if I get 30 minutes, then i got to be ready for that. But, you know, a, a John Wall right now would be a big help, and I feel like that's another reason why I think there's a chance at a playing game because John Wall could be back. And I, there's no scenario, Stephen, where I see John Wall going anywhere in a trade before the end of the year. They, they might buy him out by midway through the season. But if the Rockets are maybe in a close to a playing situation, maybe John Wall wants to continue to play with the Rockets. Why not? And then do the buyout after the season. Well, it kind of makes me wonder. I mean, if the Rockets are really wanting to trade him, shouldn't they have been playing him much longer than this? I mean, if it, you know, if a team wants to see what he's got, they're not going to see it with him sitting on the bench being a quote-unquote player coach. So it, it does make me wonder, and I would have liked to have seen Wall in some of these games to get quote-unquote ramped up when you start facing these tough teams. I mean, you throw him in against, say, you know, Brooklyn or you know some of the other teams they're going to be playing that are going to be a whole lot tougher than they're facing. You know, and, and here's the other thing, too, Robert, that might kind of put a, a damper on your scenario, your playoff scenarios. Jalen Green's not ready to come back yet. I mean, it's taking longer maybe not longer than we expect because you just never know about these kind of injuries. But the longer he stays out, the the harder it's going to be for him. You know, and when he does come back, he may need to get back in rhythm. We don't know how effective he's going to be. So, yeah, having John Wall in there, he, he should have been in there a long time ago. We've said this over and over. And I don't know if it's the, the Rockets are giving into his, you know, I want to either start or not play at all type of thing. At this point, John Wall just needs to do what's best for the team, period. And if that means coming off the bench and playing 20 minutes to get him ramped up and back in there, then that's what you do, and you stretch it out. But, yeah, that that's going to be a big key as we come into these next few weeks where the schedule is going to get a whole lot steeper. Yeah, and Stephen, I, I think you're looking at this, and some people are looking at this like, oh, this was the Rockets' decision not to play John Wall. Oh, or, oh, this was John Wall's not. To, we don't know 
whose decision it really was here. And we don't know why he's not on the floor right now. Well, it's obviously mutual or he'd be in there. Yeah, well, to a degree, it's mutual. But, you know, you imagine one side's put in a little bit more pressure. One side brought it up. You know, John Wall just didn't walk in and go, hey, you know what? I don't want to play the next two years until you guys trade me. I I just don't think that happened. I mean, John Wall worked so hard to get back. So it's really hard for me to believe as hard as he worked to get back that he would just come in there and go, you know what, guys? I know you're going to be paying me $44 million this year, and I, I know I haven't played hardly at all the last three years, but can you just bench me and make me your your coach on the bench? I mean, that's hard for me to believe, Stephen. Yeah, I, I wondered about that, too, when he said that or when, when it was reported that anyway. Because, look, the guy is a competitor. You saw it when he was with the Rockets last year. So, well, yeah, I mean, if, if the Rockets wanted John Wall, then John Wall would have been in there at the beginning of the season. There's no question about it. But how much of it is John Wall? We don't really know, as you said. But either way, I don't know that it matters. He just needs to be in there playing because unless he's just going to be a a total washout, you know, scoring uh, two points a game and having 10 turnovers or something, he can't he's he certainly can't hurt the team by being in there, can he? No, I don't think so. I mean, the only thing that he hurts the team is giving less mortars to less minutes, excuse me, to Kevin Porter Jr., which is part of the development of the Rockets, and that's what they want to do, and they want to see what Kevin Porter could do. And, and he looked better as a point guard in these last few games when he has been healthy. You know, after that first stint where he went down for a couple of games, so you know you don't want to go. Okay, let's toss this away just as we're seeing maybe a little bit of difference in Kevin Porter Jr. And I, you know, I have to say. I got as hard as I've been on him. His defense has gotten better. He's taken care of the ball a little bit better. Um, the shot selection, the shooting in itself, I think has just been a little bit better. There's still things that concern me. There's still things that worry me, but I, I just, those details, that's the stuff that worries me, but let's, let's see, let's see it play out some more. Um, I, I, he's convinced me at least for now that I want to see a little bit more of Kevin Porter jr. Play, even if it's not at point guard, just play period because I do think he helps this team overall and he's the best pick and roll player that we've seen with Christian Wood that's not James Harden because John Wall was not a good pick and roll player with Christian Wood that was a big disappointment for me when I was watching John Wall and Christian Wood play early last year when James Harden you know was was kind of done um, I wanted to see what John Wall and Christian Wood could do together and and it just wasn't all that impressive well obviously the Rockets are committed to KPJ uh, to developing him and being in there but Here's another reason, though, that John Wall should have been in there. The the time that KPJ has been out, that is prime ground for John Wall to be in there and getting the minutes that he should get until KPJ gets back in there. And you can still I I still say there's a rotation in there where you can have both at at this point until you decide what are you going to do with him. So, you know, right now, John Wall should have been in there just because KPJ is out. And that's a good time for him to come in and help the team. Yeah, the only thing I I don't like particularly about. Kevin Porter playing off the ball is he's not a really good spot up shooter and neither is John Wall. But, you know, hey, at least we're having these conversations. At least we're talking playoffs, which sounds like we would be nuts talking about this a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and we might be in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like it's absolutely insane. But this team has definitely turned a corner. And if they could keep Christian Wood healthy and maybe get some of these guys back in there, this particular lineup, I don't know if you can beat good teams consistently, but they're going to be competitive with Garrison Matthews out there with Armani Brooks getting more time and the way his shot and it's just his whole game is developed. And I'll talk a little bit about, about that in the future. Uh, plenty of good rocket stuff to talk down the road, but 
you know, let's get into a team that had played really fantastic this entire season. And I'm not talking about the Texans. We're going to get to the Texans, but the best Houston area football team this season has been the Houston Cougars. They've been a hell of a story. And we were hoping for the major upset of Cincinnati on Saturday. Steven, I had Scott Holman podcast host, Dustin Rensick on the show a few days ago. And I made the point that you wanted to at least give the Bearcats a game. Do you think they did? In the first half, yeah, they did. I mean, if the, if the first half, if it had ended in the first half, the Cougars, yeah, they'd have lost, but they they would have certainly given Cincinnati all they could handle. Then comes the second half, and then the Cougars do what the Texans do so well, is have a penalty at the absolute worst possible time. You got a fourth and three, and you get a pass interference call. They quickly score, and then they end up scoring what two more touchdowns after that. There's your ball game, Robert. Right out the window. As good as the Cougs defense has looked at times this season since he just killed them with chunk plays all game. They had 400 yards on offense, 11.2 yards per pass, 7.5 yards per rush. All of that, even though UH doubled them in time of possession, the Cougs missed a couple of opportunities for touchdowns in the first half. Huge. Had to settle for field goals instead. Clayton Toon had the only turnover the Cougars had, but it was a huge interception in the second half that was, mm. I don't know, it was a backbreaker. I thought that team is just too talented, Stephen, not to take advantage of opportunities or give the ball away. Yeah, and that's what worried me, really, Robert, is that I just felt Cincinnati was clearly the better team on all sides of the ball. And they certainly, but the Cougars did show up. I mean, they, they gave them a game in the first half, and it just, you know, you wanted to see them go, and, and at least, I, I felt like, I didn't think they could beat Cincinnati, but I felt that maybe they could hang with them and make themselves look good, you know, going into the bowl game and then going into next season. And they still can. I mean, they're, they're going to be playing Auburn. So that that's, you know, going to be an interesting game. Auburn has certainly fallen on hard times the last few games. But I still think the Cougars can – it's certainly been a better season than I would have expected, especially after the loss to Texas Tech, Robert. I just – I didn't know what to think about the team after that. But they clearly pulled it together. But they're just clearly not ready – for being a type of team like Cincinnati at this stage. The talent just isn't quite up to Cincinnati, and you hope this impending move to the Big 12 will start seeing some better recruiting, some more talent overall on the Cougars. But Tank Dell is so fun to watch, and Alton is fantastic, and Clayton Toons really turned it on this year. And, of course, Marcus Jones, they're going to miss him desperately. I'm going to miss watching him play what an incredible we talked to I don't know if you heard it Stephen we 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 had a really good conversation about him and some of those other guys with Dustin a few days ago and it just I I I can't talk enough about Marcus Jones I can't get enough of him he's just uh, what a what a talent I mean defensive back getting interceptions occasionally playing wide receiver and of course you know special teams it's must watch you know Marcus Jones gonna take a kickoff I gotta watch it punt return I gotta watch it (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's too bad you can't give the Heisman Trophy to a guy like Marcus Jones because what can the guy not do? I mean, he just does everything, and he does everything well. So, yeah, he's going to be clearly missed as much from the Cougar side of them playing for him as people like you and me watching him, Robert. couple of fun teams wearing red. Then they have the team that's got some red in it, but uh, they they play like they're more blue because you're just blue watching them, and I'm talking about the, the Texans, and it was just – it was disgusting. The offense stinks. Coming into this game, here you go. The Texans offense ranked 
32nd in the NFL in yards, 32nd in rushing, and 31st in passing. I'm guessing the Texans offense is dead last in passing too now. 141 yards total, 57 passing. And it really wasn't even that much. There was some yards at, towards the end of the game that you're just like, oh, well, that's just, you know, who cares that the, the Colts had, you know, started packing their bags and headed home at that point. Well, I mean, you knew the first two series, the way things went. It's like, okay, it's going to be another long day for the Texans. And, and I'll be honest with you, with you Robert. I, <laughs> I like to be, you know, totally honest on this podcast and straightforward. I didn't watch the Texans game live. And, and I was kind of hoping that, you know, I, I'm almost relieved the Texans lost because, you know, the last time I did that, Robert, they won. And I thought, ooh, uh, my podcast future might be in jeopardy if uh, it keeps happening. But, yeah, clearly they were just outclassed again in, in all seriousness. What? They lost 31 to 3 to the Colts in the first game, 31 to nothing in this game. And it just, you know, how much more brutal can this team get? They still have some games to go before the season's over. First play from skirmish Tyrod Taylor throws an interception. Here were their offensive possessions in the first half. There was that one. <laughs> the next one was they get one first down, and then Farrell Brown fumbles the football. Yep. I want to see more Brevin Jordan, by the way. Didn't see enough of him in this game. Uh, next offensive possession, three and out. One after that, three and out. Then they get two first downs and punt. Nico Collins wasn't lined up correctly, negating a big play on that possession. And then the last possession of the half was a three and out. Uh, it was disgusting to watch in the first half. 40-some-odd yards, I think, on offense. The, the Texans' defense, it, they do a great job just sort of keeping it close most games in the first half. And I, I give them credit because they know they're going to be out on the field the whole time. This particular game, they just couldn't get the turnovers that they've been getting this year. The Texans, meanwhile, were turning the ball over in the first half. So, you know, that's the ball game. If you go to the second half, Colts open up, nine-play, 75-yard drive, touchdown, Colts. Then on offense, Texans three and out. Defense, again, you know, they 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 try to keep you in the game a little bit. They get a punt near midfield. The Texans defense do. Davis Mills replaces Tyrod Taylor in the second half after an injury. Uh, drive ends on an incomplete pass. Bad overthrow on fourth down by Davis Mills. And Stephen, what I don't understand is with how bad the Texans offense is, why they never went into a hurry up. I also don't understand why they continue to run the ball so much as bad as it's been just like mix it up, do something different, but you know, you're not going to run the ball number one. And number two, if you hurry it up, you at least change the mo you know, maybe change the momentum a little bit, change the, the feel of the game, do something different. This is the same thing over and over. It's the definition of insanity. Yeah, they're obviously not listening to our podcast, Robert, because we've talked about, well, you know, when Davis Mills was in there before, I talked about how he looked more comfortable when they ran the hurry-up offense more. Yeah, I mean, I understand you can't do it the whole game, not necessarily, but in certain situations, you certainly can. And, I, I mean, what are you going to do? You, you have a terrible running game. You have an offensive line that is certainly not good at run blocking. So why do you keep going to the well and, and the screen passes too? Why do you keep going to the well when it is not, when, there's no water there. It's dry. I did mention it, but they're, they're, actually the Texans did get a turnover, which uh, was late in the game. So it's easy to forget about yeah. it. But Tavier Thomas causes a fumble. Christian Kirksey, who was back from injured, you know, he, he, he gets the recovery. Also, Justin Britt was back in this game, but the story with the lineups Oh, you got to go back to this new Texans phenomenon where every week somebody gets benched for disciplinary reasons. And this time it was Zach Cunningham 
after he missed the team's COVID-19 testing Sunday morning. It's just always something. I mean, every week it's, it's some, you know, maybe starter with Justin Reed last week, Zach Cunningham this week. There's somebody that's getting benched for disciplinary reasons. They keep saying they're going to change the culture, but they keep having to discipline guys, which means the culture is not changing at all. And the culture is losing offense stinks bad everything and it's just so hard to watch well you can't change a culture robert if you don't win it's as simple as that yeah and look i know there's only so much anybody can take i don't care what level of sports you're playing when you keep losing and losing and okay they they won you know the game a couple weeks ago but most of the time the team has just been losing and there's clearly a lack of leadership Uh, both i i think even in the coaching staff and certainly among the players i mean these guys you know, Justin Reed, Zach Cunningham, these guys have been around a few years. These aren't rookies who just think, you know, they're entitled to be in the NFL and all they have to do is just show up. These are veteran guys, and there are some young guys on this team. They're not exactly having a good example to follow. So, you know, that this is what happens when you keep losing and losing. Everybody just starts losing focus, and it's just an I don't care and I'm out for myself kind of attitude. Over the last couple of years, we've tried to come up with your offensive MVP at the end of game, Stephen. Uh, go ahead. I'm, I'll let you handle this one. Give me your offensive mm. MVP of the Texans. <laughs> Can we just put all the names in a hat and, yeah, and just and just draw? Because <laughs> it, it could be anybody. I mean, they didn't even score any points today. So how about the whole offensive unit for just going out on the field? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you mean it can be anybody or you mean it can be nobody? Because, oh, my well, goodness. Well, basically the same. Yeah. Yeah. Either one. Uh, Rex Burkhead, he had eight carries for 30 yards, 3.8 yards a carry. He looks like my guy at this point. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll just go ahead. I'll, I'll ride on your coattails on this one, Robert. That sounds good to me. <laughs> well, Brandon Cooks, he had 16 yards rushing on one carry, and then he had three receptions for 38 yards. He all yeah, 50 yards of total offense, hmm. more than 50 yards from Brandon Cooks. So let's make him our offensive MVP. Defensive MVP. Yeah. Got to talk about the defensive MVP because this is a real guy. And this guy continues week after week to be in the conversation for defensive MVP, if not being the defensive MVP, period. And I'm talking about Camus Grugier-Hill. And one of these weeks, I'll figure out how to say his name correctly. But just Grugier-Hill. I know that part. He yeah, set yeah. a Texans record, 20 tackles. Texans record with 20 tackles. And it wasn't just meaningless tackles. He had 10 solos. Uh, he was in the backfield a lot, three tackles for loss, one Texan sack in this game, and he was the guy that got it, and one quarterback hit. So tip of the cap to him. Somebody on the Texans showed up, and somebody showed up big, and, and that was him. And he's he's my offensive, defensive, special teams MVP. He, he gets everything rolled into one. Just call him the game MVP, really, because, uh, look, we, you know, we may have to do one of two things, Robert. We may need to either exclude him from having to win, to win the award just because he would probably win it every week from here on out, or better yet, we could just name the award after him, the Grugier Hill Defensive Player of the Week, you know, or the Defensive Player of the Game, because we keep calling this guy's name more and more every week. He just, he continues to come up with reasons that you got to keep your eyes on him. We're going to have uh, no show with Steven in a, in a few weeks, so no Texans post game, and I, and I have a feeling that 
Steven, you're just going to be incredibly upset and frustrated not to be talking about the Texans in the last couple of weeks of the season. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe I should reconsider because I tell you what, that is just, yeah, I don't know what I'd do if we can't talk Texans for two weeks. It is just brutal. And let's just move on from the Texans. Uh, we apologize for that segment, but I know there's still people out there that are trying to keep up with it. And, you know, as we always say, we, we, we watch the Texans, so you don't have to. That's the theme for the season um let's move to baseball uh, not much with astros talk because there's this little thing called a lockout that started up but there is some big baseball news that i i, I want to bring up because they made the veterans committee major league baseball hall of fame announcements and you're thinking oh how many astros got it well there is no astros <laughs> that got into zero the, yeah not, not none of them but some very interesting names on the list, Stephen. Jim Cott, Minnie Minoso, Buck O'Neill. Oh, I love Buck O'Neill. Everybody loves him. Dick Allen uh, finally got in. Tony Oliva and Gil Hodges. And I wanted to focus on specifically Gil Hodges because that one perked my ears up. Let me throw out these numbers for you listeners and, and for you, Stephen, if you have not seen these particular numbers. Gil Hodges, 8,104 career plate appearances. 8,104. Lance Berkman, 7,814 career plate appearances. So roughly, Gil Hodges played about half a season more than Lance Berkman. And remember, Lance Berkman, not even considered in the Hall of Fame because, you know, he didn't get to play a, enough to be considered in the Hall of Fame. He didn't play enough games and, you know, he doesn't have enough counting stats or whatever. Gil Hodges, same numbers in some ways, but not these ways. Berkman, 943 OPS. Hodges, 846, a 100-point difference. Berkman, five top 10 MVP finishes. Gil Hodges, two top 10 MVP finishes. Hodges postseason OPS, 761. Berkman's, 949. Now, Hodges was a renowned defensive first baseman, three-time gold glover, but defense at first base isn't exactly like a shortstop or center fielder. So, you know, it's not like, well, he's just making such a huge impact on the game. And we love Yuli and everything like that. I'm guessing Gil Hodges probably wasn't Yuli defensively, but I don't know. But even so, Stephen, this is very interesting. And it tells me that Lance Berkman's going to get into the Hall of Fame down the road. Well, he might. I, I mean, with the, it, it, that's an intriguing comparison, Robert. I must admit, I hadn't thought about it. And of course, you know, Gil Hodges a bit before my time. So I, I didn't watch him play, but I certainly you know, learned about him and, and all the many of the others that you talked about. But it, it's not inconceivable. You know, somebody would, would have to make a push, obviously, for someone like Lance Berkman to get in. You know, Gil Hodges, you know, was even a pretty good manager for the short time he was able to. So he, he probably had more recognition, I guess. But Lance Berkman, I, I mean, you know, look, I'm an Astros fan. I, I'm going to cheer for any Astros to get in the Hall of Fame. I'm still waiting for Billy Wagner to get in. So, yeah, somebody like Lance Berkman, it, it'd be a few years if he ever did get in, but certainly would have to pull for, for someone like him. And, you know, you, you talk about some of the other names like Tony Oliva. I mean, I look back and go, I, I saw Tony Oliva play toward the end of his career just because that's when I started following baseball. But kind of amazing that somebody like Tony Oliva hasn't been, been in the Hall of Fame. But And, and Buck O'Neill, same thing. What so many great things he did for the game of baseball that most people don't even know about. So I'm glad that some of these guys have finally gotten in. I should also throw in that Dick Allen has about 
the same numbers as Berkman, although his OPS lifetime is 30 points less. But the numbers are remarkably similar between Dick Allen and Gil Hodges and Lance Berkman. Dick Allen, though, 500 less plate appearances than Lance. I I didn't play long enough to get into the Hall of Fame Berkman. Well, he wouldn't tell you that, but that's the reasoning that he's not in there is he didn't play enough games. He just doesn't have the counting stats, as they like to say. And so between Dick Allen and Gil Hodges, things are going to have to change as far as the perception of Lance Berkman, and I sure the hell hope it doesn't take 50 years like it took Gil Hodges to get into the Hall of Fame. Well, I, I think one of the things you're seeing too, Robert, is you know obviously you're you're getting some different writers in there now in in voting and, and trying to get some of these guys in. So you know if there is that may be something to be said for Lance Berkman getting in the Hall of Fame. That that might be something that you'll see down the road. Is you know some of these guys that were in there before were just very hard line old-fashioned type voters. They they were only going to vote you in under certain circumstances. you know. But some of these other guys that are coming in now, I think are maybe a little more open-minded to consider other things besides just the obvious stats. Now, I'm not saying that's it's going to be that way across the board. You know, the Hall of Fame is still, it should be, a difficult thing to get into. You really should be the elite of the elite. That's what it's supposed to be for. So not everybody can get in. But yeah, if you're going to let these kind of guys in, then you have to go, well, what about this guy? And what about this guy? So at some point, it, it's going to come to a head. But I, I think that the, the baseball writers, slowly but surely, and I emphasize slowly, uh, are beginning to change their way of thinking a little bit about the Hall of Fame voting. Can't remember if you and I spoke about this, but we knew that when Harold Baines got in the Hall of Fame, the bar had dropped about 500 feet yeah. to get in. yeah. I, I was very surprised Harold Baines got in, honestly. The other part about it is how soon does Lance Berkman get to be voted on by the Veterans Committee, Stephen? I forget how many years after you're no longer on the Hall of Fame. You know, because he had that one shot to be on the Hall of Fame ballot, and that was it. And then he got kicked off basically because there was that PED jam of guys that they're voting on, but they're not voting in. So the guys like Clemens and Barry Bonds, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why he just got lost in the shuffle, I believe, by the the voting committee. But at the same time, it just amazed me. It was, what was it, less than 5% or something like that? Do you, do you, have, do you remember this? Do you have any idea? Because I should have looked yeah, this up. Yeah, it, was, it, it is definitely it is like 3%, something like that. And, and that's, yeah, I guess that's the other thing is that particular era – it's going to be very difficult to to pin down, you know, who's going to go in and who's not. I mean, the, the obvious guys, Bonds, Clemens, and, you know, some of these other guys. But but somebody like Lance Berkman, I mean, you're going to point to somebody like him and say, well, he, he definitely had uh, took steroids, so he doesn't need to be in. No, not, not true at all. So, yeah, it's going to be really muddying the waters when you start talking about guys from that era. Do you remember at all? Is, I mean, I can't remember, and I should have looked it up, when—, when- Lance Berkman would be eligible for for the you know I want to say it's like twelve years or something like that. I mean a number of years have to go by. I think it's, you have you run out of a certain number of chances before your time is up, and then you just go to the veterans committee. So yeah, it'll be a few years before I think that happens for him. But I mean it'd be nice if it didn't have to get to that point. But I, I just have a feeling that's where it's going. Just uh, very interesting. I, I just thought that whole deal was. Super fascinating, and it might have gone a little bit under the radar for some people. Um, another thing that I, I think was very under the radar this week 
And this is when I want to close the show out before we finish it off is how about this story where Forbes, one of their reporters says that the NHL's Arizona Coyotes are for sale again with the idea of a buyer eventually moving them to Houston, quote unquote. That was on Twitter. Now, the Coyotes and Commissioner Bettman immediately said, oh, it's not true. None of this is true. But Stephen, what is true is that they're looking for a new arena. Nobody is going to Coyote games. The franchise is bad. They finished higher than 18th in the league exactly zero times in the last decade. That is terrible. The franchise overall, going back to the Winnipeg Jets, has had just one top 10 NHL finish in the last 30 years. And to top it all off, Tillman Fertitta has said in the past that his priority is to get an NHL team in Houston. Yeah, uh, that's, he has said that more than once. I, you know, Robert, I look, you know I'm a hockey fan. In fact, I cover hockey, not, not uh, the NHL, but I cover youth and, and some college hockey uh, in my work. So I've always been a big hockey fan. And, you know, in the 70s, when I was a kid, I, I got turned on to hockey because of the World Hockey Association and the Houston Arrows and watching Gordie Howe, who, you know, I'd heard about, but he was, you know, he retired long, probably before I was born. So I've always been a big hockey fan, but, you know, I have been hearing about Houston getting an NHL team since the NHL merged with the World Hockey Association in the late 70s. I've heard story after story after story. So I'm kind of one of those pessimists that, you know, is sitting here saying, I'll believe it when I see it. But let's look at this. You're, you're right. The Coyotes are indefinitely in trouble you know, and they haven't even had their ownership for for very long. This current one, so there there certainly is that chance. And you know, here's the other thing, Robert is they're kind of running out of cities to put NHL teams in because they've left Houston out for so long. You know, they've given one to Vegas, they've given one to Nashville, they've given them to Tampa Bay. You know, and and the Florida Panthers also. I mean, you know, where else are you going to go that hasn't had an a, a NHL team? So I I think at some point. And, and there are definitely enough transplants in Houston where I think hockey could make it. Now, you've had a couple of minor league teams that were also called the Arrows in the last 30-plus years that basically went away. But, you know, it's minor league hockey. I, I still think that Houston could support an NHL team. But there's just been a big reluctance, I think, on the part of the league to, to show it. But I just feel at some point it's got to happen. And you and I both know when Tillman Fertitta makes up his mind to do something, usually gets done. So there is that chance that it could happen sooner rather than later. I don't know what the crowds could be like for an NHL team in Houston, but what I will say is there are a lot of people that aren't going to football games on Sunday that might be looking for a way to spend their money on a, on a weekend watching maybe a different sport. And if it's going to be a bad sport, why not watch one that, you can be cool at whereas like some ice and it's a little different and a little you know something that's not exactly the same as the nfl and maybe people would be open to that that aren't going to texans games right well now. that's right and here's something else to consider robert you know unlike most sports with expansion teams i mean the nhl has kind of set things up where you know expansion teams have been succeeding lately i mean look at what the vegas golden knights did a few years ago they make the finals in their first year i mean that's unheard of for an expansion team now that's kind of the exception rather than the rule but even the seattle kraken i mean you know they just started this year they don't stink so if the team could come in and get a good product right off the bat 
and and win, you know, or at least be respectable, and then go from there. You know, it starts with great leadership, obviously, something the Texans could certainly take some lessons with. <clears throat> then I think you have a, a chance with that as much as the fact that you're starving for a really good product. Uh, I mean, the Rockets are winning now, but who knows what they'll do, you know, in the next few months or years. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a chance. I, I don't know that they're going to set attendance records necessarily. What I also think is that if you can develop hockey from the grassroots level, if you can get a good, strong youth program going in Houston the way you have in a lot of the cities in California and in Florida and, you know, even in, in Dallas and some parts of other parts of Texas where it's been very successful, I think you can you could do the same in Houston and start getting people to turn out and, and come to an NHL game. You didn't think you would hear it on Houston Sports Talk, but we did give you a few minutes of, of NHL talk. This is what happens when you don't have a real NFL team. <laughs> yeah, well, that's certainly true, too. But, but uh, you know, honestly, I, I mean, hockey is one of those sports, they are really trying to grow it. Uh, the NHL is, is really trying to step up and grow it. But I, I think that at some point, you got to put a team in Houston. I mean, come on, it's, you know, one of the top five cities in the country, you know, with, with the TV market and and. You know, that's the other thing. You've got ESPN and you've got TNT. You know, their, their TV contract's pretty darn good now, too. So they're getting they're putting a lot more games on television now. So there's going to be more exposure to hockey all over the country in the years to come. And that can only be a benefit to Houston as well. While we're waiting for hockey and while we're waiting for NFL to come back to Houston as well, I should say, uh, it is nice. It is very nice to have both the Houston Cougars still going out and just killing pretty much everybody except Wisconsin this year. They've pretty much handled all, all of college basketball. It is nice to have an NBA team that looks like they should be on the court with everybody else and not in the G League. That's good. And and winning games and, and looking like there's some potential future hope with some of the young players and all of that stuff's going on. It's, it's, it's nice to have that stuff because, Stephen, I was getting really worried with the lockout and the Texans and everything. I'm like, what? Do I have to watch this next few months? Well, yeah, and it, it, I mean, you know, baseball is my sport, Robert. So the fact that the lockout is going on—I mean, right now I'm pretty pessimistic about that too. Is that they're so far apart in talks? I mean, is is the baseball season even going to start on time? And talk about heartbreak with the way the Astros have been playing for the last few years. Yeah, they may lose Correa, but you know, they're still a pretty darn good team on paper. So anything we can grab hold of, buddy, let's do it and let's ride it as long as we can. The good thing is they won't lose Korea for probably another three months or maybe yeah, longer. They're not going to lose anybody yeah, because <laughs> nobody can do anything. In fact, they, they don't even have the players on the websites now. They've, they've taken them all down. So nobody's going anywhere right now. So you can just say, well, Carlos Correa, yeah, he may not be an Astro officially, but he's, you know, he, he's not with anybody else. That's all we've got for this one. But until our next show, light the fuse. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.